Hello and welcome to Double Exposure, the podcast that just wants you to know, no matter what you do, you're going to die, just like everybody else. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I'm Adam Harris. I'm Stacey Robinson. And today we will be discussing Moonstruck. All right, Adam, mm-hmm. I feel like this is the episode that I've been most waiting for for years. I've been <laughs> waiting for this episode because I've been telling you since we've known each other, basically, that, that we need to watch Moonstruck. And mm-hmm. I feel like I've been putting it off because it's so important to me. And then because we were going to do it for the podcast. And, yeah. and now we're here. We are. It's finally been seen. And I mean, I have to reveal something. I had actually seen the film on your instruction before. Oh, but I this wasn't am the first time. especially happy to be seeing it again and doing an episode about it. Oh, I'm so excited. I have a little lamp in my in my recording booth. I have because the light up here. I hate overhead lighting. Um, mm-hmm. I'm in a closet and I have this little light that my sister gave me that's a moon. It's like a little yeah. globe. And when you hit it, it it has a light inside. And it's my light in my recording booth. So it feels really appropriate that I have this little moon that I'm looking at while we discuss this film. Definitely. And I'm sure the moon will have an effect on you as well. Mm, certainly. Um. Well, yes, we're going to talk about Moonstruck today, and it's going to be wonderful, and I can't wait. But first... (laughs) Before we get into it, uh, what have you seen recently? So, I revisited an old favorite of mine recently. Um, This is a romantic comedy called Down With Love. Have you heard Mm -hmm. of it? I've heard of it. I have not seen it. Yeah, it's a little... It's it's kind of a like '60s spoof movie. It's kind of playing off of um, like the old Rock Hudson, Doris Day, like mm-hmm. pop '60s kind of vibe. Um, okay. Like very raunchy, but you know, tongue in cheek, and almost feels like a musical, but it's not a musical. Mm-hmm. With uh, Ewan McGregor and Renee Zellweger, it came out like just after they were they were both kind of coming off of Chicago and Moulin Rouge. So whatever year that was, like 2005 or something, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's adorable and it's hilarious and it has David Hyde Pierce and Sarah Paulson. And mm-hmm. I just, I, I'm always showing it to people because nobody, for whatever reason, I feel like it just didn't do anything. Like nobody saw it, no one remembers it. Yeah. Um, I saw it multiple times in theaters. Like, I, obviously, I'm in love with Ewan McGregor, so <laughs> I would have done that even if it wasn't good. But it's it's just a great little comedy, and I'm always showing it to people, and they always react the same, which is like, why didn't I know about this? This is great. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I, uh, I showed it to a friend the other night, and it was it was delightful. 
Yeah, I'll have to check it out. It's really weird how some films just kind of languish in the bargain bin, mm -hmm. even though they're yeah, totally hilarious or yeah. Yeah, I another movie I feel that way about is um, I Heart Huckabees, which was kind mm -hmm. of the same era. It was like mid two thousands, and I think I mean in that case it's a little bit more understandable because it's kind of a weird movie, mm -hmm. but it's so funny and unique and it has an amazing cast and no one's ever seen it. No one remembers it. It's a David O. Russell movie, but I think before mm. he had gotten really big and successful. And that's the guy who did silver linings as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now okay. he's, I feel like he does a lot of more sort of period movies or like, mm -hmm. like he did American gangster or no, oh, it's not right, called American, yeah. American hustle. I always, uh, yeah, okay, I always okay. mix up the times. He did American hustle he works with Christian Bale a lot. Um, yeah, he's a, kind of a controversial figure now. I don't, um, I don't, I haven't like looked into it because I don't want to ruin <laughs> the movies of his that I like. But, mm -hmm. um, but he, you know, his movies are quite sort of widely seen now, but people still don't know about this little weird existential comedy that he made in like the mid 2000s and it's it's I mean it's always fun with those kinds of movies when you show people and they're just like oh my god I didn't know about this this is great but underrated yeah again that's another one that you introduced me to mm. and I that one I can definitely see why it wasn't revisited not because it's not good but because you don't really know how to define it it's quite a hard film to explain to someone right well, and its sense of humor is mm -hmm. so specific. Like, obviously, it's not something that I think a larger audience would necessarily get. Yeah. Um, just because it's it's silly, but in a very kind of intellectual way, I guess. Yeah. So, so I, I do kind of get that, but I still just would have expected it to have kind of a cult following, you know? Well, I guess we're its cult following now, so that's something. I right, we I am its cult following, and I am going around and one. collecting cult members. Yeah, and I'm doing that with Down with Love too. I'm just like one by one. I feel like that's what we're doing with this podcast too. We're just trying to create our own little <laughs> private cult. Yeah, I look forward to being indoctrinated. Yeah. Um. What about you? What have you been watching? I also revisited a film or some films in preparation for this. Uh -huh. I watched Vampire's Kiss, which Nicolas Cage billed as the film he needed to do to recover from doing this movie. Oh. Uh, he was saw himself as more of a kind of like punk bad boy actor. Yeah. And didn't know why he signed up for Moonstruck exactly, or at least that's what he said at the time. Mm. And then immediately afterwards went to do this very, very weird... Um, it's got sort of American psycho vibes, Ooh, but okay. also very uh, surreal and silly. Uh, you've probably seen the clip from it, which is Nicolas Cage, or one of the many clips from it. Uh, mm -hmm. Him running down the street yelling, I'm a vampire, I'm a vampire. <laughs> you know, if I've seen that clip, it was probably part of a Nicolas Cage montage of just him being yeah. crazy and everything just blurs together. <laughs> so I don't know if I remember that specifically, but I can definitely picture it. Yeah. Yeah, I think this film probably contributes about 
I'd say maybe a fifth of all the clips in those compilations. It's he said it's cagiest, uh-huh. and it's actually pretty good. But it's very. It's a different film, but it's not necessarily a different kind of performance from him. Mm-hmm. So that was my my big piece of research. Yeah. And outside of preparing for this, I also went to see Elvis. Oh yeah, how in was that? Cinemas. Uh I think you and I discussed this before that it's sort of cheating to mm-hmm. play the back catalogue of a famous artist's songs really loud in a darkened cinema. Yeah. Because you just, you can't tell if you're enjoying the film or if you're just enjoying the music that you have all these memories and associations with. Yes. So, yes, I remember us having that conversation because we went to see Bohemian Rhapsody. Exactly. Which was objectively bad. Terrible. But it does also contain all of Queen's music, which is obviously great. And you're listening to it in this amazing sound system, really loud, mm-hmm. in a theater, and it's impossible not to be excited and emotionally affected by that. And <laughs> it is cheating, yes. Yeah, it's it's seriously cheating. And I mean, the last 20 minutes of that film were amazing. But with Elvis, it's sort of peppered throughout. There are performances that are good. Uh, the lead actor, I'm afraid I've forgotten his name, does a really good Elvis impersonation, mm-hmm. to my mind. But the film feels more fixated on like the glitz and the glamour rather than Elvis as a person. And mm-hmm. so it's hard to really sympathize or understand his own personal struggle. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of a Baz Luhrmann thing, I guess, that he really, really loves spectacle and subtlety, maybe not so much. He's not a subtle artist. No, I would not. No. I would not describe him no. that way. <laughs> and we love him for it, but uh... what's the opposite <laughs> of subtle? Um, it's a really good question. Ostentatious. Yeah, ostentatious. We'll go uh, with yeah, that. Yeah, that's what he is. Um, yeah. and sometimes that really works. You know, you know, I'm a huge Moulin Rouge fan. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think he he's always felt almost like. A music video director to me rather than a film director exactly maybe, and maybe that's why moulin rouge works because it's kind of a long music video it's also why this works in part because it feels mm-hmm. like music videos for a bunch of songs that don't have videos yeah or right. recreations of existing videos with additional behind the scenes material that you couldn't have got at the time yeah uh, yeah i could totally see that and i could see that being just fun enough that you are into it and then you walk away Mm -hmm. feeling like i don't know if you really told a good story though i feel like you cheated and just made music videos of like songs that are catchy yeah exactly i mean go and see it in cinemas for the spectacle but don't expect your life to be changed and i honestly don't know if i'd have enjoyed it as much on my laptop screen or you know on a tv with just regular sound because it just doesn't I just don't think it would transport you in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. What you were saying before about the performance and it being kind of a good impersonation, that's that's how I feel about a lot of biopics. I always have really like mm-hmm. mixed feelings about them. And that was my main issue really with Bohemian Rhapsody was just feeling like, okay, you're impersonating this person, but I don't, first of all, I don't know if you're really doing right by them. Mm -hmm. And second of all, 
why do we need this? Like, we already have this person's actual performance. Yeah. Why do I need you doing a really good impression of his performance? I can just watch his yeah, performance. Yeah, exactly. You know? It does also feel like, what are you trying to say with this? You decided to dig up this person's life and portray yeah. them, but you can't just state what happened in their life impassively. You you sort of end up having to build a narrative. Right. And there needs to be a point to that. It can't just be like, wow, what a great person they were. Or, oh, they were so tormented. There needs to be... Yeah. There still needs to be drama. Right. And that inevitably ends up becoming this gross thing where it's like taking somebody's life and twisting it to fit your narrative or to make it more dramatic. And that, to me, feels wrong to yeah. to dig up somebody else's private business and twist it into something to try and make money off of it it's it's exploitative and it feels hypocritical to be like oh look how much this person suffered and they were exploited by mm -hmm. the culture and it's like you mean what you're doing now like what we're all doing exactly. right now <laughs> yeah making a spectacle out of this person's life without them being here to speak for themselves yeah definitely yeah well um Speaking of spectacles. Speaking of spectacles, I suppose we should get into our film for the episode. Yeah, let's do it. So today's film is Moonstruck. It is a 1987 romantic comedy directed by Norman Jewison and written by John Patrick Shanley. It has a spectacular cast, which I'm sure we will get into in great detail, um, mm -hmm. But the two leads are Cher and Nicolas Cage. Uh, and no pressure, but it is one of my favorite movies of all time. So if you don't like it, then I don't like you. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, spoilers <laughs> right out front. I did like it. So okay, good. I'm safe. Phew. We're good. We can continue this in, in good airs. It's fine. Oh, I'm so relieved. Um, well... Great. Then let's begin with how did you start with this movie? You mentioned you you had seen it before at my behest, but what yes. what's your background with this film? So I know the director Norman Jewison and I feel like he's one of those directors who I'd heard the name, but I'd never put his body of work together and associated it with him. Mm -hmm. So I mean he's directed loads of really like he directed In the Heat of the Night which is one of my favorite movies. Oh, okay. And obviously Fiddler on the Roof, The Thomas mm -hmm. Crown Affair, which we saw together. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Like, he's got a really, really big back catalog uh -huh. for someone who I feel like we don't really talk about as a famous old no. director. No, no, I never hear him mention. Yeah. And I had heard of Moonstruck and I knew it was by him. I'd sort of been avoiding it. Because I'm a guy and I assumed it was a romantic movie that I wouldn't like. I think it's I'd been for burned girls. by Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I cut myself off from all the potential enjoyment and fun I could have. Just just because. Because uh, it's so sad how the patriarchy does that to people. <laughs> it's like here's this fun thing that's great that you could just enjoy, but mm -hmm. because we have to be like sexist and homophobic, you're just like not allowed to like this thing. 
Exactly, yeah. Until, uh, Until at your behest, yes. and you had probably told me about this film, I'm going to say once a year, every year that we've known each other. Mm-hmm. It's probably more, and it's probably not quite as consistent, but, but right. like roughly that. And yeah. so I think this I, is, I think this gives our listeners a pretty clear idea of what it's like <laughs> to be friends with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I decided to sit down and watch it. I think we'd been saving it for a podcast and mm. as listeners may know we've been trying to do this for a very long time mm. and eventually I caved and watched it. And it was good. I was really shocked at how much I enjoyed it. Mm. I think I saw it when I was sick and I'd assumed like, oh, it's going to be something. It'll be fine. It's going to be enjoyable. Mm. And you really love it. So it can't be all that bad. Mm. But it's great. It's hilarious. The performances are fantastic. Mm -hmm. I I just found myself really getting into it. And so when you mentioned that we'd be talking about it for the podcast, Mm -hmm. I really welcome the chance to watch it again. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. What about you where did it all begin how did this happen so i i actually didn't love this movie immediately when i first saw it i i I vaguely remember seeing it as a kid i don't know why or exactly when i might have been a teenager um i think i just watched it because it was just around or like i rented it from the library or something um Mm -hmm. so I saw it and I remember, I think, thinking it was fine. I, I don't think I had like a strong opinion about it. And then I I revisited it in my early 20s because I was in an acting class and someone was doing a scene from this. And it's always very mean when someone gives someone a scene from this in an acting <laughs> class because that shit is not easy especially Nicolas Cage's part it's very, you yeah. know you have to be very big and um so it's it's like it's extremely challenging um his part in particular but also Cher's part like the I think that this is something about Shanley's writing generally like his characters are like icebergs like even if there's not a lot going on I mean in this case mm-hmm. there's a lot going on on the surface but even if there's not a lot going on on the surface, there's a they're big and there's a lot going on underneath. So you have to like fill a big space. So somebody that I knew was doing a scene in our acting class. And so we all got together and watched it afterwards. And I think maybe seeing it in that context, like seeing it all as a group was somehow embarrassing. So like the over-the-topness of especially mm-hmm. their initial like romantic scenes together we were all just like kind of embarrassed and giggling and so yeah. i remember walking away thinking like oh you know it's it's fine it's 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 really melodramatic it's really over the top and then i saw it again a couple years later and was like wait what no i'm obsessed with this movie i love it <laughs> and then and i've seen it a million times since then so i think maybe somehow you know, I can understand why somebody could see this movie and just sort of dismiss it or think, oh, this is this is so cheesy, you know, because it, it mm-hmm. is. It's cheesy and it's over the yeah, top, definitely. but it is an absolute masterpiece. And I think 
I've been like guiltily trying to make up for the fact that I wrote it off at one point ever since then. Um, yeah. But I think the, the beauty of this film is that it is sort of unapologetically big mm-hmm. and its emotions are big and its uh, sentiment is big and it manages to do that successfully because everything is rooted in something true. You know, it's rooted in a in a real sense of culture and family and um, like it, it feels true to life. No, ma- like, yeah. no matter how big it is, you feel like, yeah, but there are people who are that big and this feels like them. Definitely. And I think that your initial reason for being turned off by it or not into it mm-hmm. of, oh, well, it's cheesy or it's yeah. melodramatic or over the top. And you just feel like, yes, it is. Right, and, right. And <laughs> your point that's is? That's the thing. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So I repent for my sins <laughs> of not appreciating this movie before. And I, I like to think that I've more than made up for it since then. Yeah. And if not, then perhaps this podcast can be a, a form of penance. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. All right. So for our listeners who, um, of course, as usual, anyone listening, if you haven't seen the film, I mean, there's not really much to spoil, but you probably want to watch it first. Yeah. yeah go ahead <laughs> um, and see it. Right. But uh, for our listeners who maybe have seen it, but it's been a little while and they might not remember exactly, Adam, do you want to tell us uh just the basic plot of this movie. Sure. So the film follows Cher's character, Loretta Castorini, who lives at home with her parents and her grandparents in a kind of big Brooklyn, Italian-American family. Mm-hmm. She has just been proposed to by her, I guess the best way to describe him is idiot boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. He's a mama's boy. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, he has proposed to her in He's the most... He's a big baby. Exactly. In the most <laughs> sloppy and clumsy way imaginable. And for some reason, she has said yes. The one thing that she's concerned about is that she has bad luck and there can be no ill omens falling over everything. Her mm. previous husband had died and she wants everything to be above board, done properly, so there's no risk of bad luck affecting the marriage. Right. To this end, her husband-to-be, Johnny Camareri, has told her that he needs to go and see his mother before she dies. And he's going to spend a month in Sicily with her, just making her comfortable and being over there with her before she dies. And then he's going to come back and they're going to get married in exactly one month. Loretta's task is to find his brother, Ronnie. The two have differences that need to be reconciled before the wedding so that he can also show up at the wedding Mm -hmm. Cher tries to call him on the phone and he's an animal (laughs) and so she's forced to go and meet him in person and uh, yeah thus begins a fiery passionate romance between the two Mm. that uh, I guess leads to a kind of like it's almost like a comedy of errors in places but basically leads into a an operatic love story and dissection of men and women and love and death and family. Yes. Yeah, great. So this movie is written by John Patrick Shanley, who is 
a playwright generally. I think he mostly writes plays and he's written a handful of screenplays as well. Um, his most famous play and film is Doubt, mm -hmm. which uh, you may have seen the film with Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams. Yeah. I would describe his writing style as being very poetic. Mm -hmm. To me, his stories always feel almost like a parable, like they're very rich. They have a lot of symbolism. The characters feel very big and mm -hmm. representative of, you know, something greater than themselves, but also very human. It feels like he he kind of paints in these like rich, broad strokes um, in a way that I find deeply satisfying. I really enjoy his writing. Yeah, I've also seen Doubt, and both films feel, obviously they have different subject matter, they deal with different themes, but... Very different tonally as well, Doubt is, is quite serious. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're right that the the size of the of the characters, the, the like mm. weight that's within them feels like something that links the two. Though this, yeah. it comes out in a much more melodramatic and operatic way and with doubt obviously it's much heavier and i guess more emotionally charged or, or more more suppressed maybe is the word i'm looking for that's interesting because i do think uh i wouldn't say that that's true with this film with moonstruck but i do think in a lot of his work that i've seen some of his plays mm -hmm. you do have the sense of things being sort of suppressed or repressed and that that's mm -hmm. where a lot of that icebergy feeling comes from that it's like not a lot is being expressed but you can feel how much there is underneath it and mm -hmm. with moonstruck it's interesting because it's almost like you're finally like blowing the lid off you know like no one is suppressing anything in moonstruck everything <laughs> is like out there and it's huge but there's still that size yeah. underneath it as well yeah definitely um, the crazy thing is that, it, you know, apparently this script got passed around a lot. Like nobody, nobody wanted to do it. I think a lot of people wrote it off. When Norman Jewison mm -hmm. found it, he he says uh, the cover was covered in like coffee stains, which means that it had been like passed around to a lot of people before it got to him. Mm -hmm. um, and he read it and thought this is a, this is a great script. I, you know, he knew he understood it and he knew what to do with it. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of people passed on the script initially, um, which is surprising to me because the script feels so strong. But I could see how, well, it's interesting to think about how does something read on paper before you've actually seen it brought to life. Mm -hmm. I wonder if his previous experience with um, yeah Jesus Christ Superstar or with mm -hmm. Fiddler on the Roof, mm -hmm. like having this awareness of these huge also incredibly melodramatic stories and knowing how to make those work totally kind of primed him for this yes yes so i mean norman jewison knows how to do a musical like he knows how to do size and grandeur and drama mm -hmm. in that way and i think moonstruck obviously is not a musical but it feels like it needs that same touch it has that same operatic quality definitely yeah um so the, the title also, I think, might have something to do with that, because initially it was called 
um, Shanley's original title was called The Bride and the Wolf. And mm. it was only after Jewison had come on and, and come in as director that he said, you have to change this title. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if the film would have been as successful or maybe even got made if it's stuck mm -hmm. with that name. Mm -hmm. It doesn't it doesn't feel like it fits this film. Right. Like I can see why he called it that, because he's trying to tell this kind of parable story of their love and him being a wolf and the the symbolism of their coming together. But that mm -hmm. that would maybe work as a play title or it works as a title after you've seen it. But when you're looking at a list of movies and you see that, yeah. it doesn't really convey, I think, what he wanted it to convey. Moonstruck, I think, is is perfect. You know, it, it's so mm -hmm. it's so hard to imagine that not being the title. And uh, yeah, especially you're right that if I had seen just the script with coffee stains on and it said The Bride and the Wolf, yeah. I don't know that I'd even have would have opened it. Right. Or, or made it past, you know, the first 10 pages. Yeah, I think that once you have somebody like Cher or, you know, all mm -hmm. of these actors in these roles, giving them, it, it gives them life, but it also gives them credibility. And I think yeah. it takes a certain talent to be able to see that just in the words when you don't have an actor there yet or you don't have a star, you know presenting mm -hmm. something to just say oh i can see that there's like good work here there's great potential yeah. here um i think it takes a certain eye for that and norman jewison clearly has that gift and he knew exactly what to do with this i think it's the i think he and his way of directing and shanley's way of writing i think they're like a perfect match here it's so it's so satisfying yeah i think that Obviously, the leads are great and all the supporting characters are great. And you can feel like the performances have been directed incredibly well. Mm. And that the tone of the setting feels so specific and yet so universal. Like it feels like you're in Brooklyn, mm. but you also feel like it could be any neighborhood and any family there. Yeah, I, I mean, to me... This film, I mean, we'll, of course, we will get into each performance, but I do agree that the overall sort of ensemble feel of it, it really, it really has this tight knit feeling like you are in this family and this community and this culture that mm -hmm. exists. Like it's, it's very, it's, it's totally solid. It has roots, you know, and that yeah. is just such a, such a rare, and wonderful thing when you can watch a film and feel like like you can just settle into it like you can just nestle in with them and mm -hmm. feel like this is this is real family yeah yeah definitely it just feels like this perfect confluence of the writing the direction and the actors themselves all just meshing together to give a feeling that there's something bigger behind this than what you're just seeing shown on screen yeah yeah, so John Patrick Shanley, as you might imagine from the name, is not Italian. <laughs> he is Irish-American. Mm -hmm. And I I see this film as basically a love letter that he wrote to Italian culture, or specifically Italian-American mm -hmm. culture, which I think is its own unique thing. And 
this, I mean, I, I think that's something that this movie just totally nails. And, you know, my, my family on my mom's side live in New York and they're Italian American. So to me, it has this deeply sentimental quality because when I watch it, it just transports me immediately to like my grandma's kitchen and, you know, being, being in New York and the way that people talk and the way that we are in each other's lives and the way that we feed each other. Like it's, it's so uh, precise mm -hmm. in terms of the performances. I, I think to me, that's a huge part of the movie's heart. It has this like real beating heart within it. And it's, it's wild to me because, uh, you know, Norman Jewison, I, I thought, oh, he must be from New York or something. He's Canadian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then Cher isn't, even though mm -hmm. I had thought before watching that Cher was Italian, she's actually, I mm -hmm. think, um, Armenian and Cherokee, I want to say, mm -hmm. or like she has some native ancestry. Oh, okay. And yeah, Olympia Dukakis is Greek. She's Greek, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it feels like the the movie is so respectful of that culture and really understands it so well. Um, apparently, uh, this was this was funny to see in the in the interviews. Apparently, um, Norman Jewison wanted to cast Cher, and she said, "No, I can't do it. I'm not Italian. I can't do the accent. I don't. You know, no one's going to believe me." Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Olympia Dukakis said something similar. She was like, I'm not Italian, I'm Greek. I don't know how to do that accent. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. And um, apparently Julie Bavasso, who plays uh, Rita Capomachi, mm -hmm. the um, the aunt, yeah, she is uh, a dialect coach ah, as well okay. as a very talented actress. And she uh, she taught them how to do their accents. And Norman had her record all of Cher's lines and had Cher listen to her saying them so that she would learn the rhythm and the intonation and really get it, you know, in her blood. Um, and I mean, obviously, I mean, it worked because, yeah, you know, she walked away with an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's so interesting. Uh, it, it totally makes sense. Yeah. And Olympia Dukakis, too. You know, both of them, both of them got Oscars for their performances. Um, and it's so funny because they were they were the two people in the cast who were like, oh, but I can't do that. I don't know. I don't know how to mm -hmm. do that. Well, someone who definitely does know how to do that is Nicolas Cage. And mm. from what I'd heard, he was kind of in and out quite a lot, but that Cher was insistent that he join the cast and that he'd be included. Yes. So this is this is one of my favorite stories about this movie, that Cher apparently was the one really pushing for Nicolas Cage, who she calls Nikki, mm -hmm. which I think is adorable. And... Um, cause he, at that, at that point, I think he'd been in a couple of films, but he wasn't, he wasn't a star or anything. I don't think he was known really. Yeah. And, you know, he's Nicolas Cage, like he's kind of a weirdo, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I think the producers at MGM were like, no, 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 we don't, we don't want that guy. Um, and Cher really put her foot down and was just, you know, stubbornly like i'm not doing this movie unless it's with nikki yeah. and she actually like she fully said like i won't do mm -hmm. it and they had a couple of days where she she talks about this in the in the dvd commentary she said she spent a couple of days feeling like ah oh, you know because she she really wanted to do it 
but she's like no it, it has to be with him it, it like it, it can't be with anybody else mm-hmm. and they did eventually they did eventually bow to the power of Cher well you have to right but it but uh Shanley also talked about how they had done a screen test with some other actor they you know they they didn't say who but he said Cher just like blew him out of the water mm-hmm. you know like it it just it was like it was Cher and some guy yeah. And Nicolas Cage could actually like hold his own. Like he, like I was saying, there these characters are really big, mm-hmm. and you need someone who has that size yeah. to them. And I think, you know, Cher has that size, and it's it's really rare to find an actor who can match mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's the characters aren't subtle, but there's a lot of subtlety to them. Mm. They're these big, larger-than-life performances, but the people behind them feel very intricate. Mm-hmm. And I can totally see how, if you one, I think it plays into what we spoke about before, the idea that maybe people picked up this script and just didn't know what to do with it or how to mm-hmm. approach it. Mm-hmm. And the same, so, you know, from a directing standpoint, but also from an acting standpoint, I think you could easily just give this to someone who, they it wouldn't be because they were a bad act. They just don't, know how to do this this isn't right them right i think especially his character because he's so um he's so tormented Mm -hmm. and his whole speech when she first meets him with his hand Mm -hmm. or when they you know go up to his apartment and you know he's so passionate and he's literally you know he's throwing the table over and if you're not big and loud enough and if you're not able to actually back up that much size mm-hmm. with real emotional integrity and and truth then it can so easily just be like ridiculous and embarrassing and cringy and horrible yeah. you know it it you really it takes really like a bold courageous person to be able to go that far out and still make it believable like it's actually built out that far it's not just like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna scream a lot yeah yeah to scream a lot and to be over the top and also for us to completely understand why she's leaving johnny for his brother ronnie i think that the Mm -hmm. supporting cast also do a really fantastic job of Mm. playing these larger than life characters but without overshadowing anything i think uh danny aiello who plays mm-hmm. Johnny just gives such yeah. an amazing performance. He's just he's, such he's like a Shakespearean fool. He's just so uh, perfect. Yes. Yes, and it's so it's so well cast as well. Like you you immediately know who this is. Yeah. Like when they're sitting in the restaurant, that's such a great scene too and I mean I this is one of my favorite things about this movie is that I think it's one of those movies where you know everything you need to know in the first five minutes. It's like we, mm-hmm. like the whole story of the film, it's all right there. It's all just like set out. You know, we, I, I love the opening shot with this, you know, the opera truck and everything mm-hmm. getting set up for the opera. And then we see Cher and, and she's kind of dowdy and this, you know this guy's giving her a flower and then we're in this restaurant and this is her boyfriend and it's like okay yeah this is what's going on and 
and it just it sets the stage so beautifully and he is just so yeah like kind of trying in some way to be a man Mm -hmm. but we can see like he's so stressed out and he's so like like pathetic it doesn't come naturally but in a really funny way like you still you still you still like him Mm -hmm. even though you don't want Cher to marry him you know yeah I think you can kind of see why she pities him or what she likes about him at times but it definitely feels like she's mothering him the line about the fish or mm-hmm. um, or him complaining that, like, oh, it's a new suit or that he likes this pinky ring and he doesn't want to give it up. You just feel like, God, you're such right, a baby. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think, you know, that also her whole predicament of, you know, that she has bad luck. Mm-hmm. I think the the main arc of the of the film and of her journey as a character is really about going from you know she followed her heart once before Mm -hmm. and it got broken because she married someone for love and he got hit by a bus yeah and what she took away from that was that she can't trust her heart she can't follow her heart she has to just be sensible and do the sensible thing and lead with her head and so she ends up with this man who she can control and she she can boss him around and she'll be safe and she'll be married and she doesn't mm-hmm. love him. You know, I I love, love this exchange with her mother where her mother says like, oh, you don't love him? Oh, that's good. Because when they love you, they drive you crazy. Like mm-hmm. that her mother is, is sitting there with her heart being broken because she's in love with her husband who's breaking her heart, you know. Yeah. And, and they have this exchange where she's telling her like, don't do it. Don't suffer like I'm suffering. Protect yourself. Marry someone who you like but you don't love. But mm-hmm. deep down, she does want her daughter to find love. And, and it's just, ugh, it's such a, just such a beautiful truth of this film that, you know, love is, love is messy and it, and it hurts. But yeah. what's the point of being alive without it? Yeah, that sort of brings us on to there subplot so uh Mm -hmm. rose and cosmo's relationship yes which just fits in it like fills the negative space that's left by Cher's pursuit of uh nicholas cage or his pursuit of her Mm -hmm. and that they just Mm -hmm. intertwine so perfectly and are perfect foils to each other of um yeah that she knows her husband's having an affair and Mm he is carrying on in a really shameless way but also it's really clear Mm. that he loves her and like you said that like that is what is that's what's on her mind throughout the entire film and is influencing the way she is protective of her daughter or talks about the idea of love with her yeah and i feel like she finally gets this closure in and we'll like talk about this scene at length but when um johnny comes to the house and mm-hmm. the two of them are talking about men chasing after women and death. Yes. And yeah, that's when she finally gets her closure and gets to share <laughs> share with her husband, you know, it's not going to change anything. We're all going to die. Right. Right. And I think this is another theme within the film that I just love, which is 
it's so the whole movie is so obsessed with death like the very first shot um or not the first shot but the you know one of the sort of title shots where we have a corpse mm -hmm. and all throughout the film you know there's just this this anxiety about death that Cosmo speaks about or you know this this fear of like like a superstition around death yeah and we see these male characters like cosmo or the professor character in the restaurant feeling like they're trying to deny death you know mm -hmm. that by like chasing after women or dating younger women or um rose says like oh he didn't used to be this cheap he thinks if he doesn't spend money he won't die mm -hmm. that there's this sense of like men in particular trying to trying to run away from death and yeah. and that's contrasted with this celebration of life that happens when when they make themselves available to love. Yeah. yeah, speaking about the kind of themes of opening yourself up and love and the mm -hmm. pursuit of love or younger people, I feel like the opening scene it's mm -hmm. so layered that we have mm -hmm. the character of Perry played by John Mahoney on this unsuccessful date with one of his students and him mm. getting stood up and just the, the hilarity that's there as a part of it, the sadness and also this like routine, this like the restaurant know that this is going to happen to him. They've already mm -hmm. prepared it all. And we see this is like a running gag with them that they know right. this is how it goes. Right. And there's Remove a line. all evidence of her and bring me a big glass of vodka. Exactly, yeah. And there's a line from Bobo, the head, mm -hmm. head waiter or restaurant manager, as I'm not entirely sure, but he comments uh -huh. when Johnny is going to propose that he's going to lose a bachelor customer. This idea of, right. like, he's been a good bachelor customer for 20 years. Right. That everyone is a part of everyone's life there is this like mm -hmm. understanding of love and the pursuit of love and the like breakups and failure and marriage like all of these elements kind of being in the public space to be seen and commented on and they impact everyone around right. you in the community yes totally i think that's actually i didn't think of it that way but i think that's a really great point and something that I think is very true, particularly of Italian culture, which is that love and romance and sex and like people's love lives are kind of a community event almost. Yeah. Um, and, and, and actually, Shanley talked about this because he he spoke about growing up in the Bronx in an Irish American family where everyone was really repressed and you know, wearing like plain clothes and eating bland food and no one ever talks about sex and no one ever gets mm -hmm. loud and blah, blah, blah. And then across the street would be, you know, he'd go over for dinner at his Italian friend's house and everyone's loud and they're talking about sex and music and they're eating this amazing food and they're dressed beautifully. And he was mm -hmm. like, I want to, I want to be over here. <laughs> <laughs> and so it feels almost like he was sort of adopted into Italian culture and I think that that the movie is so is such a wonderful depiction of it because it's written from this place of of real love but also of real 
understanding of like, this is, you know, this feels so true. And I think a big part of that is this, this community feeling of like, oh, oh, your boyfriend, oh, of course, you know, when, when mm-hmm. she goes to the store and, and he says like, oh, you had a date last night. And her aunt is like, what are you talking about? She's engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, oh, oh yeah, sorry. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> this, this thing of everyone kind of being in each other's business and maybe sometimes they have strong opinions about it, but that there's this sense of like a shared, um, like a shared awareness of love and romance. Yeah within within the the community yeah yeah and in the same way i think that also this in the same way that love and romance is shared amongst the community also death and tragedy is also shared Mm. amongst the community Mm -hmm. like there's just understood that johnny will go to be by his mother's side and that you know That Rose asks... My mother is dying. Exactly. How was your plane ride? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. I love the line when she's like, she's like, how's his mother? She's dying, but I can still hear her big mouth. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that, that also permeates the film. The same with Nicolas Cage's tragedy of losing his hand, that Ooh. you also feel how all the bakery workers around him like have this sense of empathy that they suffer with him and the like it, mm-hmm. i think it's also why you need an actor like nicholas cage for that role the um mm-hmm. him asking for the big knife because he's gonna yes. because he's gonna slit his throat right there could so easily <laughs> not yeah. come off the way it does but it's just this perfect right. yeah melodramatic theatrical moment yeah yeah and i think by the way uh very well balanced by uh, Chrissy and her mm-hmm. uh, the actress's name is uh, Nada Despotovich I think is how it's pronounced mm-hmm. who I I haven't seen her in anything else I don't I don't know anything about her background but I think she's she's a lovely counterweight to Nicolas Cage in that scene mm-hmm. because she's also so emotional and we can see she's crying but it's very earnest you know it doesn't feel yeah. we really feel how vivid her heartache and her pain is and it's a nice Mm-hmm. It's it's a nice balance to to Nick Cage so that it's not just him screaming about a knife, you know, and and it it's funny at the same time, you know, it it does feel light somehow, even though they're mm-hmm. both playing it so so straight and so serious. What's the line that she says in that? Like at she the says, end I of that? I tell you, I won't do it. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. But I'm thinking also of uh, where she confesses to the other shop girl oh. that uh, like I love him, but I haven't told him. Let me just let me just look that up. That is the most tormented man that I have ever known. I'm in love with that man, but he doesn't know that. I never told him because he can never love anybody since he lost his hand and his girl. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, it's just such a... You're right. She's a perfect foil to him and the counterbalance of her telling him that she won't do it. Mm-hmm. You just, you see also the like slight smile on his face that he also knows that <laughs> this is their back he and forth that they do. do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I know I love his reaction there when she says, I won't do it. And he goes, she won't do it. And he kind of <laughs> smiles. <laughs> oh, my God. Nicolas Cage, honestly, brilliant in this movie. Like, I just cannot yeah. emphasize enough how he has this pain that's so visceral. And yet 
even in the midst of it, he has that kind of slightly detached quality and a little bit of this like sense of humor to it as well. Mm -hmm. Like all, all happening at the same time. It's, it's so, it's like a chord of many weird and interesting notes played all at once. And it's like, (laughs) wow, what a strange chord. I want to hear that again. But it works. Yeah. 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 So, but going back to the the restaurant scene, I think the repetitiveness that we feel of what's mm-hmm. going on, you know, that this that this guy's been walked out on by his date and shares kind of shrugging it off like, well, she was too young for him. Like mm-hmm. this this idea of like both her and her mother kind of having this self-awareness and this almost like practicality towards life of just like, well, yeah, obviously she's going to walk out on him. He's, you know, he can't be chasing after a girl that young, like it's not going to work. And I think in a way that's that same practicality is kind of what Cher is trying to do with her own relationship of just saying like, okay, I'm going to do it like this and everything's going to be right. But she's, leaving out the piece that really scares her which is her own feelings yeah that practicality is why she why you can believe that she ends up with johnny and Mm -hmm. getting engaged to him but that Mm -hmm. practicality is also why nicholas cage is so enticing to her yes and he's dangerous i think that's that's a great word for i think generally across nicholas cage's career i think that's something you can say about him as a performer is he he feels dangerous. Like when we feel, yeah. when we see him on screen, you never know what he's going to do next. Like you just feel like he could do anything. And that's very exciting to watch as an, mm-hmm. as an audience. Yeah, definitely. The restaurant, by the way, also shout out to the Grand Ticino, which is a real restaurant in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't actually shoot in the restaurant, apparently, but they like the exterior shots are it's an actual place. Mm-hmm. Um but that, you know, the two locations that we revisit the most throughout the film are this restaurant and the kitchen. And that also just mm-hmm. feels like so true to life of like you have your restaurant where, you know, they know your name and they know what you always order and you know their name and, you know, they're part of your family. And that's where you go when you want to go out. And then when you're at home, you're in the kitchen. And that's just where that's just where everyone gravitates, because that's the the heart of the family and the community. Yeah. Yeah, I think that also you can see the bleed between the two of them. The mm-hmm. little asides that are thrown in there, like there's a shot during the proposal of, I think, the doorman shushing a couple who are talking to themselves yes, obliviously. When, when when Johnny's proposing. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like the little moments like that that show how invested and how involved and how much of a family everyone there is how much of a community they are right yeah i love that part when he proposes and everyone hushes and they're all watching and they clap and even though we know already like oh she shouldn't be marrying him Mm -hmm. it's i i can't like not tear up when yeah when she says yes and everybody claps it's just such a lovely little shared moment yeah and then the counterpoint to that is when they're at home and when Cher's grandfather is feeding food to the dog and you can feel uh-huh. this strong sense of 
discontent and um, <laughs> just anger that Olivia Dukakis feels when she says, mm-hmm. "Old man, if you give it that dog any more of the food of my food, mm-hmm. uh, I will kick you to death." I think I'll kick you until it's, you're uh, dead. Yeah. I'll kick you till you're dead. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You give those dogs one more piece of my food. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So these two locations, the restaurant and the house. We revisit them over and over again, mm-hmm. but in different contexts and with our lead characters being mm-hmm. in different places they, or different places in their lives or different places with regards to their relationships with one another. That there's this um, like repeated motif of Cher kind of slinking home and everyone wanting to know where she's been and what she's been doing. Uh-huh. And that we see the consistency that you get from those locations as her life and her love life changes, her family is still there in the same way with the same questions and yeah, the same concerns, I suppose. So we Mm -hmm. see Cher's relationship as um, after visiting Ronnie at the bakery, Mm -hmm. Cher invites him back to her place to to his place. At, at, sorry, at his place. Yeah, and she cooks for him. Yeah. Um, that she heads to his place to cook for him, ostensibly to settle the ill will between him and his brother and mm-hmm. try and resolve it. But we also know that we know what's going to happen when they, they're both there together. That just the sheer intensity of the feelings they have for each other and the sheer intensity of like what they represent in each other's lives just can't help but boil over. And you get this sense, and I think that's also where the title of Moonstruck works so well, that you have this repeated motif of the moon stirring things in people and making them just act out or just, yeah, like rejuvenating them in a way or putting them in deeper contact with their inner selves. Mm -hmm. You were a tiger last night. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Immediately after, she kind of wakes up and comes to her senses mm. and says that she's never going to see him again. It's not going to work mm-hmm. to hell with patching things up between them. Right. And his one request is, well, he loves opera and he loves her. So she should come with him tonight to the opera mm-hmm. and then it's fine. Then he never has to see her again and everything, you know, they can, they can never see each other again and live happily. Mm-hmm. And again, we also know this is inevitable and it's not going to work. Because the film itself follows this melodramatic structure of characters saying things, but we have a sense of dramatic Mm -hmm. irony that we know what's going to happen long before it does. Like you Mm -hmm. mentioned with the first scene, you know, we know that relationship's not going to work out. And as soon Mm -hmm. as we're introduced to Nicolas Cage, we understand this relationship is the relationship she's looking for. Yeah. I quite like the conceit of them seeing an opera within what is effectively a kind of operatic movie. Uh-huh. How did you find yeah. the opera scene? What were your thoughts about it? Yeah, I agree that the movie itself feels like an opera, the way that they are so, you know, these characters are so big and their emotions are so big and the way that music is used in the film, everything feels so rich and vibrant and operatic. And the opera scene, I think, is is so well constructed. You know, we have this mm-hmm. build up where she 
goes in, you know, the sort of Cinderella thing. She gets her hair done. She gets a nice dress. She puts on some lipstick. Like, we see her opening up to these pleasures of life that she has been denying herself Mm -hmm. of just doing something to feel good and to enjoy her own beauty and to, yeah, to enjoy like the, the sensual pleasure of life, Mm -hmm. which again, you know, we have it in the first five minutes of the film when, when, you know, she says, Oh, you know, someone's going to spend a lot of money on something that ends up in the garbage can. Like she's denying herself this thing and she's kind of dismissing Mm -hmm. it and acting like, Oh, well, it's not practical. But then she's like, what are you talking? I love flowers. And, and, and when he gives her the rose, she just, you know, enjoys it and she is happy about it yeah i mean we also see it with the dessert as well when he says i'll bring the dessert car and she says she shouldn't we just get this indication Mm -hmm. that she's just so set in she's so committed to denying herself these small pleasures Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. meeting someone as raw and dangerous and in touch with his emotions as Mm -hmm. ronnie just yeah yeah you totally see how it would move her. And I think the opera is effectively, has has the same effect on her, that it just stirs something incredibly deeply within her. The opera is something that finally, like, cracks her open. And we can mm-hmm. see that she's already starting to crack. And, you know, her defenses are kind of melting down. But she still sort of has them up, or she's still kind of trying to pretend like she has them up. Mm-hmm. Until that moment in the opera when it all sort of reaches this emotional climax and we see her tears and and they look at each other and you just know, okay, the 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 dam has broken and, and yeah. there's no going back from this moment. There's a really lovely line uh, when they're in the intermission of the opera where she's looking, you know, there's a shot of the Chagall painting mm-hmm. and she says, it's kind of gaudy. Yeah. And and it's like the thing with the with the flowers, it's like, oh, it's going to end up in the garbage. It's like, oh, I'm I'm dismissing it in as this almost defense mechanism. But actually, I'm standing here appreciating it. And it's yeah, it's actually uh, speaking to me and giving me pleasure. But my response to that is to almost defensively be like, oh, isn't that, you know, kind of gaudy and tacky or whatever. But but we can see she she likes it and he's and he's there as this sort of uh so his response to her i think just mm. i wanted to say shuts her down but that's not really what it does it like gives her permission to enjoy yes. it that right. he just says i think he says oh he's he's having fun or he like like yeah, as yeah, the explanation for why it's gaudy yeah right right no exactly and i think giving her permission is a really good way to put it like what he does for the whole film it's like giving her Mm -hmm. permission to to fall in love with the wrong person and to mess up her life if if that's what she needs to do yeah yeah maybe you have the quote to hand but when nick cage tells her his view of love that love isn't how it is in the storybooks and that it's painful and Mm-hmm. The storybooks are bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's I mean that whole speech about, 
you know, love is not nice. It, mm -hmm. it hurts and it breaks your heart. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to break our hearts and love the wrong people and die. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think the difference between what they're doing and what the father is doing, Cosmo, because he's also at the opera on a date and he's also, you know, with the wrong person. Mm -hmm. But in his case, he's not following his heart. He's kind of chasing after some like lost glory or something. And it's, it's an interesting contrast. I think the difference between like, they're both cheating on their partners mm -hmm. and you could say they're both doing something that they shouldn't be doing, but Cher is following her heart and with the person she loves and Cosmo is not following his heart. He's actually betraying his heart and, and running away from his love. Yeah, you get this sense that, especially in that opera scene where Mona asks him, mm. you haven't said anything about the dress. And he says it's very mm -hmm. bright. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's just clear that he enjoys in the previous scenes that he has someone who looks up to him and, yeah. you know, sees him. You've got such a head for knowing. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I adore, I adore that performance. Anita Gillette is her name, and she is just such a delight. I just, I love her so much. Yeah, she's perfect in the role, and you, yeah, you sense that he wants that level of respect or intimacy, or he imagines that he's not mm -hmm. getting that from his wife, because things right. don't look like what they used to look like. Right. But that when he's confronted with the reality of being out with his mistress, it's also not what he wants. He wants his wife. This is how I interpreted that. Right. We can see that he's very anxious the whole time. He's looking mm -hmm. over his shoulder. He doesn't want to be seen, you know. And I, I think that that's incredibly well played by Vincent Gardinia because mm -hmm. we don't... We, we can see whenever he does actually look at her or connect with her that he has very true affection for her like when he when he smiles at her we can see it's it's kind of about his ego and that she you know as you said makes him feel admired which is something that he's wanting just for his own kind of egotistical reasons mm -hmm. to try and fill some insecure part of himself or something yeah. But at the same time, you do see, you know, he genuinely likes her. And I think that's an important aspect that could could have, you know, a lesser actor could have turned either of those characters could have turned that date into like, oh, look at this, you know, trashy woman who he doesn't really love. And instead yeah. we feel like, oh, he 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 has genuine affection for this person. Mm -hmm. But. Does he really love her? No. Like, they both know that this is not what they would probably like it to be, but it, it isn't. It isn't what Cher and Ronnie have. Yeah. Yeah, I also think the moment where they run into each other is just so comic and so perfect. Both of them questioning mm -hmm. each other and him telling her that he doesn't want her carrying on. 
Mm-hmm. And then her saying, you're my father, I could say, you know, the same thing to you. Just mm-hmm. this sense mm-hmm. that both of them feel so anxious about their love and both of them know that everyone else will find out. It's only a matter of time. Right. And they're, yeah. you almost feel like they're planning what they're going to do up until that point. Mm-hmm. The, the the reality of the world they live in and I guess also the conceits of the film as well like the way that the narrative works it's like okay mm-hmm. it's inevitable now this has happened I'm on this path I'm not going to get away with it anymore this is all going to come out and I need to I need to prepare myself for that right I mean Rose has already said that she knows he's cheating on her yeah and I also love the the cutaway from Cher and Ronnie, you know, when he finally like woos her into coming upstairs with him and then it immediately cuts to the plane. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Johnny arriving and he's just as oblivious as ever. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's that kind of inevitability that you're talking about is also what makes the final scene so funny that we all know that it's just going to come out and, and it's going to come out here with everybody here and with the kitchen and that the aunt and uncle are there to see it is just, mm-hmm. I think, it's, it's just such a nice and important touch. It's not just her and her parents. It's the whole family. Yeah. I also think the moment at the end where Johnny tells Loretta that he can't marry her. Mm-hmm. And then she is pissed off about that. I think that whole back and forth is just so perfect. And it f- <laughs> it's like the fairy tale ending of he didn't mm-hmm. want to go through with it anyway. He's now happy right. for his brother. They've reconciled. Everything right. ties up so neatly at the end. It does. And and at, uh, one of the very last things when uh, the grandfather you know, they're all getting champagne and he comes over to Johnny and says like, oh, you know, you're part of this family now and brings him in too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so touching. I think family is such a, it's it's really the core essence of this film that, you know, when she says, he says, I need to talk to you alone. And she says, no, I need my family around me now. Mm -hmm. This, this idea of, everything being out there and and all of them being there for each other is oh it's it's i think there's the romance and there's the love story of this film which which i of course love but like you were saying before the family is almost like the foundation that that allows that love to take place mm-hmm. it's like the house that's built around that love and also family is what enables that love to take place i mean johnny Mm -hmm. and ronnie are related if he didn't want to make things right with his family she would never have met him or if his mother wasn't dying and then she's been healed it's a miracle you know then the space wouldn't have been given for them to get together that that family is just interwoven through every aspect of the film Mm -hmm. yeah there was um <clears throat> there was apparently an alternate ending mm-hmm. that Shanley wrote where Cher and Cosmo or Cher Loretta and Cosmo um I think because of their infidelity they mm-hmm. have to sort of do penance 
and so they go together to a soup kitchen Mm -hmm. and Cosmo says to Loretta, why is it that when these people misstep, their whole life falls apart? And when I misstep, Mm -hmm. it doesn't. And she says, because you have a family. I like where the film ends, but I also really like that line. Yeah, I I think I think it would have been distracting to have a whole separate scene there. And I think Mm -hmm. it's I think it's right for it to end in the kitchen with everyone coming together and they're all celebrating. I think that you still have that same essence in the ending that, you know, the family is the heart of of everything and that and that that's still what's celebrated in the end, even without that line. But I, I do really love that line. Yeah. So we've spoken about a number of scenes now throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Does one stand out to you as your favorite? Yeah. So this is really hard, obviously, because I love every scene. And so, yeah, choosing a favorite feels really um, like choosing a favorite child or something. Mm-hmm. But... um I I do have a favorite scene, but I no, I want to hear yours first okay. because I have like three and I'm sure that you'll I know which one I've picked, but I want to I want to hear you go first and then and then I'll tell you mine. I also had a really hard time choosing, but mm. if I had to, it would be the scene where Johnny and Rose are talking about men and women and he uh-huh sort of validates her worldview and then is surprised Mm -hmm. that he's given the right answer and can't quite believe it and then Cosmo comes in that Uh scene I just think is it just it has so many changes in tone within it and it deals Mm -hmm. with so many of the film's themes and and characters ideas and what they represent Mm -hmm. yeah I, I I and also it's hilarious so (laughs) i think that would have to be it yeah i think her theory that men chase women because they fear death is something Mm -hmm. that she knows from the beginning and she just needs somebody to recognize that truth for her and johnny for all his sins and being a big baby Mm -hmm has this moment of wisdom where he sees that truth. Yeah, exactly. You feel like his naivety is almost what brings it on, that he's just right. able to be more open and honest and truthful because he has no nothing to hide and no pretensions. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, because he's the only... You know, that we see these other men, um, Cosmo and the teacher doing that you know being afraid of death and chasing women and johnny has kind of a different issue which is that he like isn't able to grow up like he won't Mm -hmm. leave his mother's side so maybe he's able to recognize that and see that because he doesn't like suffer from that specific issue yeah yeah i I, like i feel like his stunted growth and how he's shown to us to be a child and someone who hasn't necessarily grown up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but i also feel he yeah. adds he puts his own spin on it that yeah he is kind of the bridge between 
uh, Perry's view and Rose's view mm-hmm. of why mm-hmm. men chase women. Because he explains this idea of, oh, well, maybe men have something missing and they mm-hmm. look to a woman to fill that within them. Mm-hmm. And you can see that she sort of understands that and is processing that. And it's a variant of what Perry describes with seeing a student who, you know, reminds him of who he used to be or who he wants to be or wishes right. that he lived in a world where he could be that. Yeah. It, it bridges those two things. And then when it comes down to her real question, which is even more than why do men chase women in general, it's mm-hmm. why is her husband going after someone else you know mm-hmm. why why do they want more than one mm-hmm. and then right. the then him saying well i don't know maybe it's because they're <laughs> maybe it's because they're afraid <laughs> <Right>. of death <laughs> yes yes and it's it's validating to her not only because she's trying to figure out what's going on with him but also because it it confirms for her that it's not anything wrong with her. It's not her fault. She doesn't deserve this. You know, when she finally... And that gives her the strength, I think, to confront him at the end and be like, have I been a good wife? Well, then I want you to stop seeing her. That she understands it's not because I've somehow failed. It's Mm -hmm. because of some weakness in his character and I can expect better from him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I I also adore that scene. And I think it's so funny and so truthful and touching at the same time. And it's great to see these two characters who are kind of being betrayed in a similar fashion, like they're both being cheated on by their partners. But they're so different. You know, one of them is like totally oblivious and the other one is very knowing. And to have them come together and kind of give each other something you know for him to be the one that gives her that comfort and that strength is Mm -hmm. i think really beautiful yeah and also two characters where we know how rose feels about johnny that Mm -hmm. she does think he's a bit of an idiot but that maybe that's Mm -hmm. the safe option maybe that's good Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. yeah seeing this moment of closeness between them where she could we could very easily be left with the idea that she just doesn't think very much of him but mm-hmm. yeah, that yeah. She, that there's like a shared kinship there. Like she is also aware that her daughter is uh, cheating on him as well. Right. We haven't really, I think, talked enough about how fantastic Olympia Dukakis is. She is mm-hmm. just glorious in this movie. And, you know, her pain is so visible and she wears it with this kind of just dignity and grace and she has a sense of humor Mm -hmm. to me she almost carries the whole film you know like her Mm -hmm. her steadiness throughout her husband's affair and her daughter's crazy love affair and Mm -hmm. it's like she knows the whole time you know her heart is breaking but she knows he's gonna he's gonna come back to her and they're gonna figure it out and it's all going to be okay. Like she's almost like the heart of the family that understands I'm going to stay here. And through my will and my love, and also just the, the truth of this family, the honor of this family is, is going to come. It's going to come back around. Yeah. Yeah. She feels like this 
constant. She's like the heart of the family and also the heart of the film. Yeah, yeah. One of my scenes... So, okay, so I have... I think... I have a scene that I think I have to say is my favorite, but I have two really close runners-up. And one of them is similar to your scene, and that's when Rose is in the restaurant with Perry. Mm -hmm. And the way that the two of them keep each other company in their respective loneliness Mm -hmm. and the way that you know the vulnerability of that scene that you know she's there on her own and she's clearly in pain and he's just been left by another girl Mm -hmm. and them coming together and just sort of being companions to each other in their in their abandonment from their lovers or their partners is so touching and and beautiful and sweet and the way that he is kind of you know she says you're a little boy like he he he's so like stupid in a way and she's (laughs) she's there giving him what he actually needs which is someone that has some life experience and that he can actually relate to and we can see that Mm -hmm. being this like medicine that he needs as well yeah yeah, definitely. And I think they both have this moment of awareness of that that's what they're... He has this awareness that maybe he needs someone closer to his own age with life mm-hmm. experience and that that's what's always been missing. Mm-hmm. But that she also feels even more acutely this companionship that she wants from her husband. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the line when they're saying goodnight at the end and... And he says, oh, you can't invite me in because there's someone there. And she's like, no, I can't invite you in because I'm married and I know who I am. Mm-hmm. That that I think is what we we're just describing, the, the sense of her being this like reliable, constant force within the family that, you know, her husband forgets who he is and goes off and has this affair. And Cher forgot who she was and tries to marry this guy she doesn't love. But mm-hmm. she's the one the whole time who's saying, I know who I am. And the reason why her heart breaks, the reason why she says, you know, it's it's better to marry someone you don't love is because the person that she loved is betraying her. Mm-hmm. So she's she's kind of aware, like, if I just didn't love this person or if I was with someone I didn't love, I would be safer. But I'm not going to do that because I know who I am. Yeah. I do think, though, that the father Cosmo also has his own kind of wisdom as well. So the other the other scene that I had as like a runner up was when Cher first returns home and tells her father that she's engaged. Mm-hmm. And their whole exchange and the way that he's just completely intolerant of <laughs> this guy and he knows immediately like this guy's a baby. This is a pinky mm-hmm. ring. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, the way that, in a way, Rose represents knowing how much love is going to break your heart. And she's almost half-heartedly telling her daughter, don't do it. Yeah. And Cosmo is like, what are you doing? You don't love this person. He's a baby. Like, y- you know, in in 
like that Cosmo is almost like the opposite of Rose where he's almost too too eager for like things to always be big and passionate to the point that he's kind of forgetting what it means to have true love that's actually mm-hmm. steady and reliable but in a way they're both directing Cher to follow her heart in their own kind of funny ways yeah it's like he's so out for love that he is then neglecting what he actually already has and is there at home yeah and her reaction to it is to tell her daughter that you know this is just a bad idea that this is where look look where i am that that's where following your heart gets you right right yeah, I think also the the dynamic in that scene between, well, really between all of them, but initially just between Loretta and Cosmo is, it's just so funny the way that they talk to each other. And I think it to some people it might seem over the top, but to me, coming from a family that's like this, it's like, no, 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 this is so real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's actually a story... Um, when my mom got married for the second time, and at this point, my grandparents were living in Florida, and we live in Colorado, so they would have to fly out. And, you know, she's from New York, and she's talking to my uncles, and they said, oh, yeah, dad said he's not coming, you know, he doesn't want to, whatever. And so my mom calls the house, Mm -hmm. and she says, put dad on the phone. And he says, hello. And she says, hey, I'm getting married. I hear you're not coming to my wedding. And he says, yeah, you got married before. And she says, you have to walk me down the aisle. And he says, I already did it once. (laughs) And she said, I know. And it was a big mistake. And this time I'm going to do it right. So you're going to be there. So I'll see you there. Okay. (laughs) And he says, okay. And and she says, all right, put mom on the phone. (laughs) And my my grandma gets on the phone and goes, well, you sure told him. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that that kind of just like bickering where someone says like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I won't do it. And you know, like they're going to do it, but they mm-hmm. have, to, we have to fight about it. You know, they need me to talk them into it. I have to convince them, you know, when he says he won't pay for the wedding and she has to tell him and the wife has to tell him and the father has to tell him and he knows from the beginning that he's going to but he just has to kind of put up a little fight about it yeah it's uh it's so funny yeah that these moments the dialogue the performances everything is so dramatic to a point that mm-hmm. i could see why someone might feel like oh wouldn't that feel contrived but with the right direction mm-hmm. and the right actors doing it it just feels real it feels like mm-hmm. the natural drama that's there in life around these topics around topics of family and and death and love and especially from what you've told me in italian culture or italian american mm. culture right totally um and this brings me to my actual favorite scene which is the final scene of the film mm-hmm. when Cher and her mother are talking and she knows that Johnny's coming over and then Ronnie gets there and then 
the father is there the grandfather is there johnny arrives then the aunt and uncle are there the whole family is there and everything all of these different storylines just come together and reach their resolution in this one just chaotic moment in the family kitchen in the morning yeah. Yeah, that was a runner-up for my favorite scene as well. Mm. It ties up so many of the loose ends, and like real life is messy. Real life doesn't just end just so with everyone happy with what's happened and everything resolved. But it's mm -hmm. just so unbelievably satisfying to see these characters who feel real and you feel like you have an understanding of their lives and how their lives expand beyond this sort of snippet that we've gotten to see through the film and yeah. just feeling the sense that like everyone has had this sense of revolution everyone has grown everyone has moved closer to being the person they want to be yes yes and the way that they all share in each other's drama you know mm -hmm. when when Johnny hasn't arrived yet and in front of it's almost like they need witnesses like they need their family to be there to witness it or else it doesn't have that same significance like that there's mm -hmm. this almost ritual power to them all being sat together at the kitchen table when Rose says have I been a good wife I want you to stop seeing her yeah and you know he again he has to kind of put up a fight but but we see he accepts it and he loves her and he understands and and they resolve this thing that's been breaking down their relationship over the course of the film. And, you know, she, Loretta is embarrassed and it's awkward for them, but they they are there as, as witnesses. And her father is there as a witness to her infidelity. And that, he, you know, when, when she gets up to talk to Johnny and he tells her, like, you know, they find out anyway. I think it's it's so beautiful, like, that, that they're there making mistakes together and calling each other out for their mistakes, mm -hmm. but also forgiving each other for their mistakes. And, and it's just, it's glorious. Yeah. Apparently that scene was kind of a nightmare to shoot mm -hmm. because um, Norman Jewison, so he rehearsed with the actors extensively before they shot anything. I think it was treated much like a play, which, I mean, it's it feels like a play, I think, this whole yeah. film, um, because of how it's written, but also because of this, this approach. So Norman had rehearsed extensively with the actors before they shot anything, but this scene, they got on set and he said, he didn't know where to put the camera until he mm -hmm. knew how they were going to do it. So he had them rehearsing all day without mm -hmm. the camera. He like sent all the crew away and just rehearsed the scene with them in this room, trying to figure out how are they going to stage it mm -hmm. and how, how are they going to play it and how's it going to work so that he could figure out then how he would shoot it. And apparently it was super frustrating for everyone. And the cast was like, like Nicolas Cage was throwing chairs and <laughs> they, you know, they had to pay a fee because the actors didn't get lunch. Like he made them work through their lunch break. And so they got a fine from the Actors Guild or whoever. Mm -hmm. So, or the, the union of whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, so apparently it was kind of a nightmare. And I can understand because there's so many moving parts, you know, it's, it's 
it's constantly in motion and you have all these new people coming in and you know it's easy to just take for granted when you watch it like oh well yeah of course you put the camera there but I mean it's not at all obvious how you would film that and so I think it's also just quite an accomplishment in terms of cinematography and and how do you how do you capture a scene like that when everyone is all over the place yeah it makes a lot of sense that it was done that way because that scene i mean lots of scenes in the film feel very intimate but they still feel like they've been shot and this mm -hmm. feels really like you're there like you're up close and like you have a seat at the table totally yes yes ah oh, i love it so much i want to go watch it again right now <laughs> Okay, so those are our scenes. What about favorite shot? So with scenes, I had some difficulty choosing and there were runners up. With shots, mm. there was only one that I knew it was going to be. Okay. Um, it's by far my favorite shot in the film, which is when Cher first meets Nicolas Cage in the basement of the bakery. Uh -huh. And he's uh, standing by the furnace and he yes. turns and we see the fire raging behind him. And then mm. he shuts the furnace door and then he goes to talk to her like that. He is this yeah. he's burning full of rage and passion and fire, but he's going to mm. try and close it and, you know, keep a lid on it if he can. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad that you chose that shot because that was my runner up. Mm hmm. And it just, it's so, we instantly know who's this person. I mean, we've seen him once before because because he was on the phone and he hung up mm -hmm. and we understand that he's an animal. Yes. <laughs> but, but we haven't seen his face yet and she hasn't met him yet. And for that to be our introduction to him and he's just like sweaty and staring in this fire, like before he's even said anything, we understand his torment and his rage and his passion. Ugh, it's it's just an exquisite introduction to yeah. what is then carried off as this this really brilliant performance, but it, it really all starts with that shot. Yeah, it sets the tone instantly. Yeah. Yeah. Um it's funny because the in the script it's that that whole scene is meant to just take place in the bakery. Oh. Um, so that whole location and the idea of them going down into these ovens under the ground was actually just because somebody found a location that found this bakery and uh, and told Norman, you know, I found this amazing place. It's got these ovens like we've got to do it here. And so that was then put into the script that they go under underground to where the ovens are but it, in the initial script it was just meant to be she goes to the bakery and he's there in the bakery and it's it's upstairs so it was only because they just happened to find this location mm -hmm. that they added this kind of subterranean element which is so funny because it works so beautifully like having them go underground and he's like this like reclusive bitter tormented figure who's just down there in the flames mm -hmm. in this like pit of hell yeah it's so it's so wonderful it's cra like it's crazy to imagine that that wasn't part of the script yeah and again a testament to the cinematography and the direction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well yeah. so if that was your runner-up 
then what was your favorite shot? So my favorite shot is just before the kitchen scene when Cher is walking home in the morning and she's kicking this can mm-hmm. down the street and it's playing, I think it's playing Musetta's Waltz, which, but by the way, we didn't talk about this, but the soundtrack to this movie is also just exquisite. Yeah. Uh, but she's, you know, we're hearing this lush opera and she looks gorgeous and it just has that feeling of, you know, early morning, the streets are quiet, the light is really soft and she's in her clothes from her night out and she's just floating like on Mm -hmm. a cloud and she's just kicking this can. And to me, it just so perfectly captures where she's arrived at through this love which is being able to just enjoy the beauty of life you know the the idea of just kicking something as she walks down the street is like the ultimate you know there's no reason to do that there's no practical purpose she you know she's gone Mm -hmm. from just like i'm gonna get where i need to go and i'm gonna do anything practical and i'm not gonna bother with these flowers or whatever and now here she is wearing this really impractical outfit and you know she's she's like done her makeup and her hair and she's just kicking this can and she's just she's just slowly and sensually just drifting home and just enjoying this moment like she's actually slowing down and and just being in the beauty of this of this moment and and in the beauty of her love it's so dreamy and so poetic to me. And I just, I wish that that shot went on for like 10 minutes. I would watch it. Yeah, it does say without words. It just perfectly expresses that feeling of coming mm-hmm. home, of being in an emotional high and like returning back to your everyday normal life, back to your house. Yeah. Yeah. And then and when she then kind of floats into the kitchen mm-hmm. and and the, and Rose is there and she's just like you know <laughs> her just dread you know this yeah. just like oh boy like here we go I know exactly where you've mm-hmm. been I know exactly what you've been doing you got a love bite on your neck like <laughs> yeah. you know when Ronnie shows up it's just like she's not surprised at all it's it's such a such a funny contrast to Cher just being like totally oblivious and then when she finds out Johnny's coming and she starts to freak out oh it's just it's so good yeah that I think I also really enjoy that moment the knowing what's coming and then the panic from the surprise that she knows her mom is gonna know what's up and that she can't get anything past her but then this sudden revelation of like oh shit Johnny's coming home now (laughs) right right And also the recurring theme of Cher when she has those moments of like, oh my God, what am I doing? That she goes into a closet Mm -hmm. (laughs) to change clothes. (laughs) I just love that she does that in the morning when she wakes up and then she does it again. (laughs) That scene, it's like, oh, I got to get back in the closet. I got to get out of this outfit. I got to, you know, (laughs) it's just so funny that, that she's doing that again. Yeah. Okay. What about line? Your favorite line? There are so many, 
Um, mm. Honorable mentions were the pipe speech that Cosmo gives. I find hilarious the theatricality <laughs> with which he brings it across. Um, and how pleased he is with uh, it costs money because it saves money line. Like I, I <laughs> yeah. find his pride there so funny. I also really liked yeah. um, from immediately after that, you've already done the impression, but you have such a head for knowing you know everything. <laughs> I thought was hilarious. <laughs> right. Um, and then obviously in from the bakery, a bride without a head, a wolf without a foot, the two of them shouting at each other. Uh, sorry, from mm-hmm. the uh, kitchen rather from yes. uh, from Ronnie's kitchen. Yeah. But I think my winner has to be the final like it's repeated twice but mm. when Rose asks Loretta mm. Do you love him Loretta? Yes ma, I love him something awful. Oh god, that's too bad. Mhm. Ah, uh, I know I love that line too. And the way that she says that's too bad. But mm-hmm. we can see in her eyes yeah. like, she's happy. Yeah, exactly. It's like Nicolas Cage with the um the big knife. <laughs> right. right. Or like or like Loretta with the Chagall. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh it's kind of gaudy, but actually I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rose has so many good lines. Um you already mentioned this one, but one of my runners up was, you know, Cosmo, I just want you to know whatever you do, you're going to (laughs) die. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. Another runner-up that I had, which, you know, just deserves an honorable mention because it's the line that everyone knows from this movie, whether they've seen it or not, which is, snap out of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Iconic. Iconic moment. Yeah, it's really an iconic moment. (laughs) (laughs) And there... Their interplay all throughout, like the way that Ronnie is so just like, I'm in love with you. Like he's just sort of resigned Mm -hmm. to the truth of his love and his passion. And she's fighting so fiercely against it. Like, no, you're not. We're not doing this. This is not happening. That um, the contrast between them is just so funny. And it, you know, that's why Cher understood, like, it has to be with him. It can't, you can't. You can't have another actor. It has to be this guy. Like, not not anybody else could could do that kind of resigned thing and still be matching her energy at the same time. Like, yeah. it's just the beauty of Nicolas Cage that he can do that. Yeah, totally. I can't imagine anyone else in the role. Like, I don't think no. we would recast it with anyone. No. Or or in Loretta's role either. You know, it's sure. Yeah. It's sort of part of, uh, I think, pop culture that people always lament that year um, when she, you know, at the Oscars because it was Glenn Close's year or whatever. Like she, Glenn Close was in oh, Fatal right. Attraction, and people are always, people are always mad that Cher won because it should have gone to Glenn Close or whatever. And I, I adore Glenn Close, and I think she's spectacular. But no one is ever going to tell me that Cher did not give the performance of her career in this movie. She is mm-hmm. she is the movie and and her her star quality and at the same time her authenticity, like her her just true the ability that she has to bring both this big operatic size and also this truly relatable 
humanity into the role at the same time, mm-hmm. I think is is really brilliant. And I think it's easy to kind of brush off because it's a comedy, it's a romantic comedy, whatever. Sure. But what she's doing is not something I think a lot of people could do either. Yeah, I think people dismiss comedy or romance or like a rom-com or whatever or, or anything that has any sense of melodrama and mm. maybe an element of being removed from being gritty and real. Yeah. As right. somehow being easier or less worthy, but I don't think that's the mm-hmm. case at all. Totally, yeah. Some of my my favorite performances are often comedies and I always think it's really noteworthy when a comedic performance gets nominated or wins an Oscar because the Oscars in particular are this brand that just is so obsessed with like, oh, well, was it really dramatic? Did you super change your appearance? Mm -hmm. You know, like there's like all these sort of things that it's like, oh, well, that's how you get an Oscar. And when someone gets recognition without doing those things, it, it really stands out to me. Another another great example of that, I would say, is Renee Zellweger in Bridget Jones's Diary, which, right. um, which was also nominated, and I think getting no- getting nominated for an Oscar in a romantic comedy is is a to me like a major accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, it's no mean feat. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but so my actual favorite line, um, we've already touched on it. But to me, it it perfectly captures the whole spirit of the film, which is Ronnie when they're out in the snow and he's trying to get her to come inside. And that whole speech that he gives, I think, is great. But Mm -hmm. the line, love don't make things nice. It ruins everything. It breaks your heart. It makes things a mess. We're not here to make things perfect. Snowflakes are perfect. The stars are perfect not us. We are here to ruin ourselves and break our hearts and love the wrong people and die. Yeah, I mean, it is basically a summation of the entire film. Mm -hmm. I think it's also one of those moments of shared truth Mm -hmm. in the film that Mm -hmm. he reveals that to her or that maybe she knows that deep down inside but she's fighting against it and yeah we also spoke about the scene where uh johnny and rose talk Mm -hmm. that there's just these moments where characters will just share something or where rose and uh perry talk Mm -hmm. that they almost explain something to each other and to the audience right through the scene right yeah and she you know, that whole scene, she's still resisting him. She's still clinging to this idea that, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to have a sensible life. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm not going to mess anything up. And he just like will not allow her to do that. And the same way that she explains to him, you know, in the scene in his kitchen when he says, what are you doing? And she says, I'm telling you your life. And he says, stop it. And she says, no. Mm-hmm. Like the the way that it's very easy for her to explain to him, I see what you're doing, you're running away, and it's bullshit, and I, I see you. Mm-hmm. He then throws that back at her here and says, I see you running away, I know, you, you're, I know you're afraid, but you yeah. can't run away from this, you cannot deny this, and I won't let you. 
there's actually a line that I think was cut from the from or that they decided not to use, but in the script, uh, he actually refers back to their conversation in the kitchen in, in this speech in the street. And he says, don't try to live on milk and cookies when what you want is meat, red meat, just like me. Mm -hmm. It's wolves run with wolves and nothing else. You're a wolf just like mm. me. Yeah, I really like that line. Yeah. yeah, I wonder why they cut it. I mean, maybe it's too on the nose or it's not the right moment for it. I, or... You know, I honestly, I don't know. I think it's a good line. I, I think I would have kept it. I've seen that scene acted before where that line is in there and I like it a lot. I think the milk and cookies thing especially is really memorable. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why they cut it. I, I mean, I think it works fine without it and maybe they just wanted to keep things simple but i i love it i think it's great mm -hmm. uh, well i'm sad <laughs> for this to end i want i want it to go on i love this movie so much and i'm really glad that we finally got to talk about it me too it's about time yeah and you know we can always talk about it again Maybe there won't be a podcast it's episode, true. but we can revisit it. That's true. We can. And we will. Oh, we will. <laughs> um, actually, there's something uh, something I came across that I thought was a funny tie-in to our last two episodes, which was um, something that Norman Jewison said on the commentary mm -hmm. uh, of, the, of this movie, which was a quote from Stanley Kubrick. Okay. And... And he said, a story that works is a miracle. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked about this script going around and people maybe passing on it and not getting it and all the ways that this movie could have been done and it wouldn't have been any good or it could have been ruined so easily or misunderstood so easily. And, you know, the script being as good as it is, and then being in these really capable hands of a re of a director who just totally gets it mm -hmm. and then having every single member of the cast just absolutely nailing it it is truly miraculous like it's something very special and the the heart of the story is allowed to sort of blossom because of every person involved really giving giving it life and giving something to it. And in that way, it does really feel like a family film, like everyone is supporting each other and they're all working together to bring this story into this really vivid life. And I just think that it's perfection. I'm sure that for directors and actors, any film that comes together does feel like a miracle. But mm -hmm. as a viewer, something like this just feels... Like everything was in the right place at the right time to make this happen. Yeah. It's really special. Ugh. Ugh. Well. On that note. I think that concludes then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that concludes this episode. There is only one thing left for us to announce. Uh-huh. Which is next week's which pick. is your next which is our next film exactly. okay so this was my pick and i'm very curious and excited to see 
where where you want to go in response because to me there's i mean there's no following this film so i i i'm eager to find out what it what what direction you want to take us in next so i wanted to focus on something you mentioned during this episode which is Mm -hmm. the uh the beauty of nicholas cage um yes okay wait yeah are you gonna tell me or are you gonna let me guess i'll let you guess you can you can have you can have two okay i didn't mean to cut you off. no 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 but uh you can have two guesses two guesses okay so and you're not gonna give me any hints i mean so it's is it a film i've seen i'm not sure if you've seen it um so you can take your first guess and then i'll give you a hint after that okay well then i don't want to get it on the first okay guess. all right <laughs> <laughs> um i mean there are many nicholas cage films that i have not seen that i've been wanting to see mm-hmm. one of them is leaving las vegas mm-hmm. is it that yeah it actually is so <laughs> damn it <laughs> i was like i don't want to get it on the first try because i want the hint what was the hint gonna be <laughs> uh that nicholas cage didn't win an oscar for this film but he has one for something mm-hmm. else yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I would have, I would have gotten, gotten it, but I was just, I was just too. Yeah. Big. The runner-up, the other choice that I had, it was going to be uh, mm-hmm. Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. I, I thought for sure that it would be one of those two, yeah. and we, I think we'll have to do like a bonus episode about Bad Lieutenant definitely. later because we definitely <laughs> we need to talk about that. We definitely could talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely need to talk about it. Words need to be had about that film. Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. But no, I'm glad that you that you went with with leaving Las Vegas because I haven't seen that and I've been wanting to see it for a while. So Great. I really look forward to that. Yeah, me too. Great. Well, then yeah, we'll have our next Nick Cage tribute uh in a couple of weeks. I look forward to that. Yeah. So thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, I remain Adam Harris. And I am still Stacey Robinson. And this will forever be Double Exposure. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.